a couple of days ago, I had um, kind of the privilege of going and looking at our new office building that's happening just through here, through this big wall, and um, it's going to be great. I'm really, really excited, particularly for our staff, because at the minute, we are kind of crammed into every nook and cranny in this church. We are like sardines packed in, and uh, this annex just gives us a bit more room, so we're really excited about it. And like Chuck said, the prayer room for us as a church is going to be fantastic as well. And when I went to see it a couple of days ago, they're kind of nearing the ends. You know, paints going on the walls, they're fitting the toilets, that kind of thing. Uh, but a few months ago, they were digging the foundations. The builders were digging down. The plan was that they would need to dig down uh, two foot. But actually, they ended up digging down two meters before they hit solid ground. And it's so important for us as Christians that we build our lives on the solid foundation of truth. And tonight we're kicking off a new series in 1 Corinthians, and uh, we are delving into a letter that the Apostle Paul has written to the church in Corinth. And a little bit of geography for you. Uh, Corinth and Ephesus, they face each other across the Aegean Sea. And Paul, at the time of writing this letter, he is in Ephesus. He's on a three-year ministry trip in Ephesus, and during that time, he's hearing talk about what's the goings-on in the, uh, the church in Corinth. And at the same time as that, a delegation from that church come over to Ephesus, and they speak to Paul. They seek his counsel. And uh, so Paul writes this letter to the church. It's written about 25 years after Jesus rose from the dead, um, just after the church had started. And Paul knows the church in Corinth really well. He knows the people really well. He spent 18 months on his second ministry trip in Corinth. And uh, he is writing this letter because he wants to remind his friends of three key truths that are absolutely foundational for a fruitful Christian life. So, why don't we read together? 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 9. You might want to tap, swipe to it. It's going to come up also on the screen. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, so um, as we uh, have just unpacked those last of nine verses, what we see is that there is a theme going on here. 
Paul is uh, looking at what does it mean to be called. So, verse 1, as Paul opens his letter, he's stating his calling. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Verse 2, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. And then lastly, in verse 9, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So three times Paul is using this word called and we're just going to unpack what that means for us uh, verse by verse. So firstly, what am I called to do? Paul was very clear on his calling. Paul called to be an apostle. You see, when God calls us to do something, he calls us for a specific task, for a job, for a purpose. You know, it's really important that we come before the Lord and we ask that question. What have you called me to do? It's a question that we all need to ask the Lord. What have you put in me? What have you created me to do? And for some of us, our calling will last a lifetime. It will go on for as long as we're on this earth, the same calling. For others of us, our calling may be seasonal, God can call us to one thing and then he calls us to another thing. And that certainly has been the case in my life. The danger is that we stop asking God, what have you called me to do? Maybe there's some people here that heard God's call very clearly, maybe years ago, and you were faithful and you obeyed the call that God had given you. You served out that call. And so in your mind, you're kind of, I've done that. I've done that, Lord. It hasn't occurred to you to come before him again and ask him again, what do you have for me now? What are you calling me to now? For others of us, it's like we don't want to ask God, what have you called me to? Because we know that there's a cost involved, or it may involve a cost, a laying down of something, a sacrifice of something. And actually, right now, we're not prepared to do that. So we better not ask the Lord what he's called us to do. For others of us here, you know, we can never consider that God would want to use us. It's never crossed our minds. You see, we've discounted ourselves. We've counted ourselves out because we think, what on earth could God do with me? We don't place any value in who we are and what we can offer. And so we disqualified ourselves. And for others of us, it's just not occurred to us to ask the question, what have you called me to do, Lord? But it is such an important question to ask because when we know what God has called us to do, suddenly that role becomes fun. It becomes fulfilling. We suddenly become more and more who God has created us to be. Maybe God's called you to start something or stop something. Maybe he's called you into full-time Christian leadership. Maybe he's called you to teach or into the medical profession. Maybe he's called you to be in local government or council. Maybe he's called you to be a full-time stay-at-home parent. Maybe he's called you to stand in the gap and intercede for someone, for a family, for this nation. Maybe he's called you to uh, start a small group or um, start an alpha course in your workplace. Maybe he's called you to plant a church. God has called us all. Every single one of us here has our own unique calling. No one is left out. 
And for some of us right now, we don't know what God has called us to. Well, the best place to start is to go before the Lord and to ask him that question. What have you created me to do? What are you calling me to do? What have you put in me? And for some of us, we will have clarity quite quickly. And for others of us, it's going to be a journey that we need to walk down, a journey between you and God. You see, hearing God's voice, it's an interactive process. It's a team effort. It's a dialogue between you and God plus uh, the people that you know and love. It's really important that as we have a sense of something that God might be calling us to, that we find someone that we love and trust, maybe someone in leadership that we can bring that sense of call to, and we can ask them to confirm it or not, as the case may be. We hear, um, we hear God in community, and that's a really important thing to do. Some of us here, we know exactly what God's called us to, but actually, we don't really like what he's, he's saying to us. And so we keep going back to God again and again and again and asking the same question, what have you called me to, in the hope that he's going to say something different. He's going to change his mind. Because actually, you've not grabbed the significance and worth and value of what God is calling you to do. And so you're not walking in it. You haven't grabbed it with both hands. Or you're walking in it a little bit, but you're a bit half-hearted about it. You know, you're not giving it your all. You're not running with it for all your might and all your worth. When we wholeheartedly respond to God's call, it unlocks something in us. It releases us more and more to be the person who God has created us to be. And often, the things that we think, I could never possibly do that, Lord. When we obey him, we obey the call that God has put, us on, put on our lives. Actually, sometimes they are the things that we love the most. They're the most fulfilling. They're the things that bring us the most joy. We become more completely who God intended us to be when we listen to our creator and we respond to the call that he has for our lives. However, sometimes... When God calls us, it doesn't always come with a sense of peace or with clarity. Instead, it comes with doubt, confusion, and anxiety. And I certainly know that to be the case in my life. Many times, I'm ashamed to say, I have run away from the call that God has asked me to do. I've run away and I've hidden. A couple of years ago, I was in that place of hiding. And I was at a Christian conference and uh, the speaker was uh, talking about uh, Saul in the Old Testament. And Saul, he had been sent out to find some lost donkeys. And as he had gone out to find these lost donkeys, he, he stumbled across Samuel, the prophet Samuel, who um, anointed and appointed Saul as king. Only in God can that happen. You go out looking for donkeys and you become a king. But that's what happened to Saul. And do you know what? He was petrified. He did not want to do it. He did not want to respond to the call that God had for him. And in 1 Samuel 10, uh, verses 21 to 22, it says this, Finally Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. 
So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. And as soon as the speaker said those words, it got me. I knew that was me. I was nowhere to be found. I had hidden myself among the baggage. I was hiding in the supplies. You see, over the years, God had asked me time and time again to feed his sheep. And I didn't want to do it. I basically said to God, I will do anything but preach. Anything at all. You ask me to do and I will do it. But there is no way I want to preach. There is no way I can do that. Putting myself out there in front of all you lot to be critiqued. You lovely lot. But you are a bit daunting sometimes, you know. There's no way I can do it. I was absolutely petrified. I realized that fear had gripped my heart and there was just no way. And I'd hidden myself in the supplies. And then one time at church, uh, just during worship, it was like God pinned me to the spot. I had nowhere to hide. And he said to me again, feed my sheep. And I had no other response but to say yes, very reluctantly very reluctantly, but I knew that I needed to deal with the insecurities and the fear that was in me. So I went and I got some prayer ministry, and during that time, God freed me from a whole load of stuff that I was carrying that was crippling me. But not only that, he revealed to me that actually this was something that he put in me. It wasn't something I was bolting onto myself, like this falseness, but it was something that he put in me. As he was creating me, he had put that in me to do. And suddenly there was a revelation, it was like a light bulb moment, when I realized that actually this wasn't a fake thing, this was something that was in me, and how could I not do it? if God intended me to do it. And so I went back to the Lord, I apologized, and I agreed to feed his sheep. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm certainly not saying I'm any good at it, but I know that when those insecurities come, when those lies from the enemy come, I always go back to the very fact that God has called me to do this. And I stand in obedience to his calling. Don't waste days or months or years hiding in the baggage. When God calls you, don't let the response be, they were nowhere to be found. Secondly, what am I called to be? Verse 2 tells us, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. We are called to be holy. The basic meaning of the word holy is set apart. It is belonging to God. It is dedicated to him. That's what holy means. Have you ever received a gift that is just far exceeds your expectations? You never believed you would receive such a gift. Well, my son, our eldest son, when he was six and a half, it was Christmas morning, and he was handed um, a little present, which he unwrapped, and in it there was a box. And he was sitting on the floor at the time, cross-legged. And he opened the box. And when the ne very next breath, he was jumping up and down, screaming, 
I've got a Kindle. I've got a Kindle. He was so unbelievably excited to the point where he had tensed his body up so much with excitement that his leg got cramp in it and he fell crashing to the floor. It was absolutely hilarious. It was a perfect gift for him. He loved to read and he loved gadgets and he never thought age six and a half he would have a Kindle. It was brilliant for him. He loved it. But he couldn't believe the gift that he'd been given. And you know, for us, the gift of holiness is um, a gift that we will never get our heads around. It's incredible. It's unbelievable to even try and comprehend what Jesus did for us when he gave us the gift of holiness. And we receive that holiness when we um, accept Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. When we follow him, the moment we commit our lives to him, we receive not only eternal life, but we also receive his holiness. It's incredible. That gift of holiness, it covers all our shame. It makes us clean. It has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Jesus. We are called holy because Jesus, who was perfect, took our place on the cross. He died for our sins so that we could have eternal life and we could be called holy. So that everything that we've ever done is covered in his holiness. And anything that we will do from now on until we die is covered in his holiness. It's incredible. We're called holy because of Jesus' holiness becomes our holiness. We are God's holy people. Whether we feel it or not, if you're a Christian today, you are called holy. Now, there's some people here tonight that know that you're not a Christian and know that your life is anything but holy. Your character is anything but holy. And actually, you would love to be called holy. Well, tonight is your night. You, I'm going to give an opportunity just towards the end of the service where you can say a prayer in your heart to accept Jesus as your Lord and Saviour so that you can receive that gift of holiness and know that you are called holy. You will have eternal life with Jesus and called holy. Next one, who am I called to love? So we're called to love God's church and the mission of his church. Verse 9, God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So our calling as a church is to be a community that takes this city, this region, this nation, and the nations for the name of the Lord, for the sake of Jesus. That is why we're here. That is why we exist. We, um, we have a calling to do that, and the vision that God has given us is through spreading life together. We are one church that meets in many places across this city and into this region because we want to be salt and light in our communities. We want to change the spiritual temperature wherever our people are, wherever our church is. We want to see people's lives set free in the name of Jesus. That's why we exist. That is our mission. We're on a mission to see the half a million people that don't know Jesus in this region find him, experience his peace and joy, his healing, his freedom, his eternal life. 
We're on a mission to see physical and emotional healings happen in the name of Jesus. We're on a mission to reach mums and dads and babies. We're on a mission to preach the gospel. We're on a mission to reach the elderly. We're on a mission to, to reach those who are suffering with depression and loss and bereavement, to comfort them and weep with them and to introduce them to Jesus. We're on a mission to invite our friends and family and neighbours and colleagues to church. We're on a mission to reach young people and students. We're on a mission to change the club scene on a Friday and Saturday night in Aberdeen to light. Where there's darkness, we want to see Jesus' light. We're on a mission to be good news to the streets of Aberdeen. We're on a mission to share with as many children as possible the incredible love of God. We're on a mission to bind up the brokenhearted and to see the captive set free through prayer ministry and intercession. We're on a mission to see ex-offenders break the cycle of re-offending. We're on a mission to see those battling with addictions break that cycle once and for all, that they will experience life in all its fullness and not just see in black and white, but will see in full colour because of Jesus. We're on a mission to see lives restored and people set free. We're on a mission to foster and adopt. We're on a mission to see marriages restored, to feed the hungry. We're on a mission to plant as many churches as we possibly can across this nation. Can I get an amen for that? Yes, we are. We are, as a church. And I could go on and on, but you don't want to hear me yelling and my voice will go. But we are on a mission, church. We are on a mission. We have been given our orders and we're on the front line. We're on the front line. We all have jobs to do and places to fight. Our mission as the church is to take ground, bit by bit, inch by inch, reclaiming the streets, reclaiming our towns and villages and cities, government, council, business, commerce, education, health. We are on the mission to raise the banner of the name of Jesus across this land. If you are part of our church, don't just come here and join us for the worship. Join us for the mission. We desperately need you. Join the front line. So, we're called and then we're equipped. Thomas Urquhart, who is the pastor, site pastor in the north, he came up with this phrase a few years ago, which I love, and it is, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. And I love that. It's so very true. Verse 7, Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. So Paul is writing this letter to his friends in Corinth. And if I'm honest with you, the church is a complete mess there. It's in a real mess. All sorts of weird goings on are happening. They're falling out with one another. They're suing one another. They are getting drunk on the Lord's Supper when they take communion together. They're getting drunk uh, loads of immorality is happening. Lots of terrible sexual things are going on. Also, there are people denying that Jesus ever rose from the dead. It is a mess of a church. It's a far from perfect church. It's a very immature church. Yet, that church was full of potential. Notice how Paul describes the church. In verses 5 to 7, notice the words, enriched in every way and you do not lack any spiritual gift. You see, it was such a gifted church. 
It was a church that was full of so much promise, yet it remained just that, full of promise. When Chuck and I got engaged many moons ago now, we were given, as an engagement present, a very expensive bottle of champagne. And we decided that we were going to crack it open um, after the birth of our son or daughter, where well, it happened to be our son. And so we kept it on the shelf in our kitchen for years. And uh, every time we saw this bottle of champagne, we'd be like nudging each other, can't wait to crack that open. That's going to be a great night, isn't it? I wonder what it tastes like. We've never had been given such an expensive bottle. You know, and in my mind, because I don't know anything about wine or champagne, I was thinking as the years rolled on, it's maturing with age. I don't know if champagne can mature. But for me, I was thinking it's getting better and better. Every month we leave it, you know, it's going to be cracking. And one night after the birth of our son, we decided that was the night we were going to crack it open. We were going to celebrate. So Chuck cooked a lovely meal. The table was set. The champagne glasses had been dusted off, were set out. And Chuck went to the kitchen and got down this big bottle of champagne. He very carefully took it out of its box, took the tissue paper off the bottle, very carefully peeled back the silver foil over the top, popped the champagne, lovely pop and fizz, poured it, very full, I might add, into the glasses, said a wee toast, cha-ching, cheers, took a sip. It was disgusting. It was horrible. It was like vinegar. We couldn't drink it. It was yuck. We had to tip the whole blinking lot away. We were so disappointed. So disappointed. All we can think is that some air or something may have got into it and made it so disgusting. We know nothing about that kind of thing, but that's all we could assume. You see, that champagne bottle was full of promise to us for years, yet that promise was never fulfilled. And the idea of something being full of promise is utterly useless. It doesn't benefit anyone. And we desperately don't want our church to be like that bottle of champagne. You know, for people to look back and say, City Church, they were so full of promise. But where, where did they go with it? What did they do? They wasted it. They wasted it. It didn't come to anything. The Corinthian church were like this. They were full of promise, but of no benefit to anyone. And we know they were full of promise because of verse 7. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. You see, they had all these spiritual gifts, and yet they weren't a very spiritual bunch. Why was that? Because God equips every single Christian, regardless of their spiritual maturity, with spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are given by the work of the Holy Spirit, and they're given for two reasons. They're given to build and edify the church, to build up the church, to strengthen the church, to encourage the church. And they're, secondly, they're given for out there to extend and expand God's kingdom. That's why we're given spiritual gifts, spiritual tools, if you like. 
And the Holy Spirit, he equips us with these spiritual gifts. And if, you're li- if you like, they're like presents underneath a Christmas tree. They come in all different shapes and sizes. Some of these gifts are better used behind the scenes, like the gift of generosity or the gift of wisdom. Others are more like power tools, if you like. The gift of miracles and healing, the prophetic of words of knowledge. Um, Other gifts are more like spiritual muscles that need to be strengthened and toned and worked at to build and develop, like the gifts of encouragement, hospitality, generosity, the gift of mercy, the gift of serving. You see, these spiritual gifts, they're like presents that God has given us, but we need to open them We need to take them out of the box and we need to use them. And if we don't do that, they will just sit in a corner and collect dust and be no good to anyone. The church will never be all that God intended the church to be unless we all corporately bring our spiritual gifts and use them. Regardless of how big or small we think our gifts are, God wants you to use them. Every single Christian here has been given at least one spiritual gift. One gift. And you need to fan that, you need to develop that, grow that, practice that. Who here likes going to the fireworks on bonfire night? Yeah, it's fun, isn't it? You know, going and seeing those big displays... Often there's hundreds, if not thousands of people that gather to watch, you know, at the beach and different places like that. And all you can hear, which I always love, I I always think it's hilarious, is the ooh and the ah as they go off all over the place. But you know, back when I was growing up, I said in the 70s and 80s, but it was more the 80s, I think, I I should say, rather than the 70s, uh, bonfire night was very different. It wasn't about this big gathering of people, but instead people gathered in their back gardens. And as a family, that's what we did. And so during the day, my dad, with his mates, they would build the bonfire, as big as they can, because they're men, and they like to make these things massive. And then in the evening, all our friends and family would come, and they would bring with them rockets, Catherine Wills, sparklers, love sparklers when I was a kid, love them. You know the baked potatoes covered in foil that you stick underneath the bonfire, gorgeous. And the bananas with the Nutella in, wrapped in foil. All of that, every single person bought something. Every single person participated. It was a real team effort. We don't do that anymore. We go to displays that are put on for us, these big displays. You know, where the bonfire is already built, it's already lit. The fireworks have already been purchased. You don't see any crazy dad screaming at his kids, get back, because he's just lit the rocket and he's not quite sure if it's going to go up as intended or shoot that way instead and hit the neighbor's cat. No idea. But you don't see any of that. Instead, We turn up, we watch, we enjoy, and then we go home. The point is, we don't want our church to be like that. We don't want to come every week, turn up, 
watch, enjoy God, and then go home. It doesn't sound right, does it? And over the years, I don't know how, but church has become more like those big firework displays, you know, that are put on for people. Put on so that people can enjoy them. But that's not church. That's not who we want to be. We desperately want every single person to bring their gifts to church. And not only to bring them to church, but to unpack them and start practicing with them, using them. Bring your gifts to small group. Take them out of the box and use them. Practice with them. Develop them, mature them. This year, our priority as a church is to pursue and host the presence of God. And if I'm honest with you, the only way we are actually properly going to see that is if all of us, corporately together, bring our gifts, practice our gifts, edify and build up the church with our gifts. We are called to be different to every other gathering in this city. We're called to be different. The more we practice our gifts, the more of God's presence and power we're going to experience. And I don't know about you, but I am absolutely desperate for that. And can I just say, hear me when I say we're practicing, we're growing, we're growing these gifts. Okay, so it's okay to get it wrong. If you've got a word of knowledge that you bring and no one responds, that's totally fine by us. It's totally fine. It's totally fine if you invite someone to lunch, you've plucked up the courage, you've invited them to come back for lunch and they refuse your offer. Don't not do it again. We've got to be people that just keep learning and growing. If we're all committed and all okay to practice and grow, and it's okay to make mistakes, then please, let's just crack on and do it. Lastly, we're kept. So we're called, we're equipped, and then we're kept. Verse 8, he will also keep you firm to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I really feel that for some people here today, you need to hear that. This is a word for you. For some people here today, it's like... Um, Everything recently has been stripped away from you. One minute it was all there, and the next minute it's all gone. You turn around and it's gone, and you're feeling exposed and vulnerable, and you've never been in this position before. For others of us here, it's like you can only describe it as that you're going through the fire. You know that it's a refining fire. You know that it's God's fire. And at the end, there is going to be pure gold. But right now, it is so incredibly painful. For others of us, you're in the desert and you've been there a long time. And you might look okay on the outside, but actually no one hears your silent agony. They don't see it and they don't hear it, but you know and God knows. For others of us, it's like the entrapment of sin is just too much. We keep getting ourselves into this cycle again and again and again, where it feels like the power of sin has got its hold on us, and we are overwhelmed and we are exhausted and we are weighed down by it, and we are desperate for God to break in. We are desperate for change. 
In these moments, it's so important that we keep hold of God's truth, that we look up and see the bigger picture, that we hold on to his promises, that God will keep you firm to the end. This means that he will save, preserve, hang on to, hold on to, cling to, hold and sustain you and me. No matter how difficult our situation might be, no matter how exposed we might feel, no matter how dry we feel inside, no matter how painful that refining is, no matter how weak our flesh is, no matter how heavy our burdens are, God will keep you firm to the end. You need to hold on to that. God does not go back on his promises. He does not abandon us. He keeps his word. His faithfulness reaches to the day that Jesus comes again and then on into eternity forever. He will keep us. He keeps us guiltless where no charge or accusation can be laid on us. We're kept firm to the end. That is his promise. We're not able, but God is. His mercy is abundant. His keeping power is strong and goes on for eternity. I'm going to finish with this. I love this verse in Jude 24. And it says this. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Keep your eyes on the truth that Jesus will keep you firm to the end. You are kept in him. Why don't we stand?